Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hi, I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold. If you are unfamiliar with my other podcast, I often cover stories from the television show Unsolved Mysteries. For the past five years, you've heard me talk about these cases on my own, but now's your chance to hear me have in-depth discussions about them with other people. I want to welcome you to my new project, The Path Went Chilly, where I will be discussing in-depth with my two good friends and co-hosts cases that I've covered on The Trail Went Cold. Meet my co-hosts. First one up is Jules. Hi, I'm Jules from the podcast, Riddle Me That True Crime, and I have a PhD in transpersonal counseling. I'm not a psychologist or a diagnostician, so don't get too excited, but I can't wait to analyze these cases with these two amazing humans. You've already met Robin, now meet Dr. Ashley Wellman. Hi, I'm Ashley. I have a PhD in criminology, law, and society, and I specialize in trauma victims and survivors. I've spent a great deal of time working with families left behind after homicides with a cold case unit based out of Florida. And I'm also a professor of criminology. I'm so excited to be chatting with two of my best friends about the cases that everyone can't seem to get enough of. We hope in doing so that we will have a clearer perspective of what may have transpired. Oftentimes, Ashley will be totally in the dark. Jules and I will be telling Ashley a story she may not know much about, so all of her reactions are genuine. We will be releasing on all major platforms April 8th. We hope you will join us as we attempt to heat up some ice cold cases. The Path Went Chili will be available every Thursday on all major podcast platforms. Okay, so because this is going to be a longer episode, originally I was like, I don't know if we're going to do a cold open. Because sometimes we don't. We know they're going to be really long episodes. But then when I was driving here today... Something happened that made me so hostile that I was like, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast. Oh my god. And if we don't do it at the beginning, I'm just going to go on a tangent in the middle of the episode and ruin everything. So here we are. Oh my god. I'm excited. So I'm having kind of a shitty day. I'm just going to put it out there. Nothing's really going right. And that's okay. Because like everyone has shitty days sometimes. And I'm pretty sure... Don't even come at me, optimists, and be like, oh, you just have to have a good attitude. Fuck you. You have a bad day. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. Fuck that. Fuck your optimism. No, because, like, everyone has bad days, and, like, having a good attitude about it doesn't make it better. That's true. Like, I'm sorry. Wouldn't have fixed any of the things that happened to me if I had a good attitude about it, so get out of here with that shit. Anyway. When I'm in a bad mood, I absolutely want to listen to one specific radio station when I'm on the way here, which I'm not a huge fan of radio, but when you're driving, that's what I have, because yeah. I'm poor, okay? 
that's what I fucking have. So, I had that radio station on. It went pretty well at first. I mean, I got a Fallout Boy song within, like, the first ten minutes of driving, and I was like, this gonna be good. Good choices. Nope. (coughs) Next song after, next song after, thanks for the memories, faded out, fucking Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're probably like, that's not a song, Ashley. That's a band. (laughs) Guess what? I fucking know that. Can't tell their songs apart because they all sound the same to me. And if that makes you angry, I'm sorry. But all the songs are literally about fucking Southern California and fucking in Southern California. (laughs) And there is nothing else. So you don't know what song it was. It was just a song. It was a song. One of them. All of them, one of them. (laughs) All of them, one of them? So anyway, I got annoyed and I had to turn on a pop station. If you know me, you'd be like, why would that even be a problem, Ashley? You like pop music. Because I was in a bad mood and I wanted angsty music. (laughs) That's why, okay? I I love Ariana Grande. You wanted My Chemical Romance and Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco. Yeah, and... Nirvana, whatever. Like, it doesn't all have to be from the 2000s. I like some of the older shit, too. But I did not want to hear the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> so, I changed it. Alright, I made it to the first stop on my way here, because I had to stop at the office to get some stuff. And then I got back in the car. So I was like, hey, I'm gonna put my other radio station back on, because that's what I really want to listen to anyway, and maybe I'll have better luck this time. Nope. Was driving maybe five minutes? Another fucking Red Hot Chili Pepper song. <laughs> or it could have been the same song. Oh no, it's definitely a different song. Don't fucking know which one. Can't tell them apart. I just know the opening part of it was different than the opening part of the other one. But as soon as he started singing, I was like, I fucking know this is a Red Hot Chili Peppers. I'm not listening to this. And I turned it off again. Anyway. That's what I'm upset about right now. Give it away, give it away, give it away. <laughs> Fuck you. Oh, I'm sorry, I had to because that that song's been in my head all You're morning. my best friend, but now I'm angry at you. That's alright. The only one of their songs I can even name is Californication, and it's not good. I mean, to be fair, that's the only one I can name, too. Yep, no, that's all I have. The one that I just rattled off, I have no idea what the fucking name of that song is. Of course you don't, no one fucking does. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been our rant on the Red Hot Chili Peppers. There's the scarlet thread of murder running through the colorless skein of life, and our duty is to unravel it, and isolate it, and expose every inch of it. Welcome to the Studying Scarlet Podcast. Hi, thanks for joining us for another True Crime Tuesday. I'm Ashley Rosewood. And I'm Jessica Sharice, and together we are hilarious and sexy. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get started with the actual case that we came here to talk about. But the good news is, it's semi-very tangentially related to the rant that we just went on at the beginning of the episode, because it does involve the music industry. I was going to say, did someone murder the Red Hot Chili Peppers and I wasn't aware? No, (laughs) but if they had, I'd probably be the first suspect now. (laughs) It's like, that's why you were late today. You drove to California. Who the fuck has time for- okay. I don't know, Superman? What's- well, He would fly. He wouldn't drive. Literally. <laughs> okay, anyway, we don't, we're not doing that. Okay. So what we're actually going to be talking about today is a case that- I, 
I've been planning to do for a really long time now, but I suck at life and I'm bad at time management. So here we are, and I've been planning to do this since October, and it is April, and I am finally done. So we're gonna do the Manson Family Murders. Woo! It's gonna be two parts, because of course it is. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'll go ahead and go through my sources. Some of these will not be directly referenced in part one, because they don't pop up until part two. <coughs> Jess is going to cough all of her lungs out Sorry. today. It's okay. I'm trying not to, but it's hard. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through my sources. Some of these, like I said, I won't get to until next week. And I know you're going to be annoyed because I'm still going to read the source list next week too, because that's who I am and I'm not sorry. <laughs> So, my main source is Tom O'Neill um, with Dan Pipenbring, and, and I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong, because I just don't fucking know, and I didn't check. It's a great name. Um, the book is called Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. I also read what I think most people pretty much consider to be the Bible on the Manson case, which is Vincent Bugliosi and Kurt Gentry's Helter Skelter, The True Story of the Manson Murders. <laughs> I will be using a little bit from Maury Terry's The Ultimate Evil, The Truth About the Cult Murders, Son of Sam and Beyond. Um, I will also be using... Well, yeah, because we used it for Son of Sam. Oh, uh, yeah, that's why I was like, yeah, wait, I know that book. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I snorted. Oh well. It's on there now. Sometimes I do that. It's cute. Don't judge me. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm also going to be using Stephen Kinzer's Poisoner-in-Chief Sidney Gottlieb in the CIA Search for Mind Control, um, and a newspaper article from the Los Angeles Times by Charles Hillinger, Wayward Bus Stuck in Ditch, Deputy Finds Nude Hippies Asleep in Weeds. That's the title. Yep. That's from April 23rd, 1968, and then I had to very briefly fucking check something today on Encyclopedia Britannica's website, so I now have to cite that too. <laughs> so I used Patricia Bauer's article on the Tate murders on there to fucking check a date because I couldn't find it. But it's fine. Everything's fine. <clears throat> anyway, I also have to do a quick disclaimer before we begin. Um, so first of all, I do want to acknowledge and thank... Um, Eric from the Fedora Chronicles for recommending two of my sources to me on Twitter. This happened months ago when we had just put out the second part of The Son of Sam. He suggested that I get the Stephen Kinzer and Tom O'Neill books. So I ordered those, I think, the same freaking day because I was like, oh, awesome, I'll definitely pick those up. The reason I said that this is a disclaimer and not just like an acknowledgement section is because since then, um, Eric and Paige from Reverie True Crime actually did a couple of episodes on the Manson case, and I know that they would have used those sources as well since he's the one that recommended those to me. Cool. Um, I just want to state before we get started... <laughs> I haven't listened to those episodes. It's not because I don't have an interest in them, because I do, but since I was working on this myself separately, and I knew I was already going to be using a couple of the same sources for sure, I did not want to risk listening to the episodes and inadvertently borrow something from them and not credit it. Mm -hmm. 
So just to make sure that I'm 100%, you know, maintaining my integrity, I did not listen to them. So any similarity in ideas that happens in our two episodes compared to theirs has to then be from the fact that we use some of the same books because he recommended them to me. Cool. Thanks, Eric. All right. Eric, right? Yeah. I said that right. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the name Charles Manson is synonymous in American culture with the actual concept of evil at this point. Mm -hmm. And the crimes committed by the Manson family are among the most famous or infamous murders in American history. In spite of the over 50 years separating us from the horrific violence that occurred in 1969, we are still horrified yet darkly fascinated by the Tate LaBianca murders. Mm -hmm. But if you probe deeper beneath the surface, it turns out most of us know only the tip of a much larger iceberg that is the crimes of the Manson family. Today we'll begin our dive into the murky waters to see how much we can find that is still shrouded in darkness and maybe cast a little light on it. So let's get started. I'm about to be real mad, (laughs) and I know that's what you're here for, so why deny it? (laughs) We're always mad. I'm always mad about everything all the time. That's our secret. We're always angry. Yep, I'm the (laughs) She-Hulk. I wish. Um, Okay, so anyway. We're going to start at a place in the story that's probably a little unconventional, because I know a lot of people would be like, Charles Manson was born, blah, blah, blah. No. We're not gonna fucking do that, because you know what? He is not... Like, it really irritates me with this case, how much people seem to worship him and have, like, some kind of weird obsession with him. Mm-hmm. He's not a fucking celebrity. Mm-mm. He's a mass murderer, mm-hmm. and he sucked. Mm-hmm. So, I don't... I'm not gonna do any of that. We're gonna start the story where I think the weird shit starts happening. Yay! Because that's what we're here for. Weird shit. Weird shit. I find a lot of that stuff to be kind of boring anyway. It's like, well, they were born in this date and this time. I'm like, no, fast forward to the stuff. Like, I'm not trying to be a bitch. I understand he didn't have a good life. Like, he had a very bad childhood and a lot of bad things Mm -hmm. did happen to him. I'm not a heartless person. I hope that you know that if you've been listening to this podcast Even if you've only listened to a few episodes, I think you should have noticed we're not heartless people. Mm -hmm. Like, I do care about that stuff, but sometimes it's just exhausting Mm -hmm. hearing everyone go over the same things and being like, mitigating circumstances. I'm like, yeah, mitigating circumstances. I understand that. I empathize with it. I think we should consider it. I'm not putting him on trial, though. He's already fucking dead. We're skipping to the part of the story that I want to talk about. He did that a few years ago, didn't he? Yeah. All right. So we're going to start on March 21st, 1967. Get right into it. Yep. That was the date Charles Manson was released from Terminal Island Prison in Los Angeles County after serving seven and a half years for forging a government check. Okay. Oh, you just wait. So at that time, he was 32 years old. Okay. Manson had spent almost half of his life confined in various prisons or juvenile detention centers at that point. Wow. Strangely, all of his prison time was at the federal level. (laughs) Had 
had the majority of the crimes on his rap sheet resulted in state-level convictions as opposed to federal ones, his sentences would have been a fraction of what they were. So, you know, everybody knows federal offenses carry longer sentences and worse penalties. And literally the estimate that Tom O'Neill gives in the book for if the all of these convictions had been state and not federal is that Manson probably would have done about a third of the amount of time in prison he had done at this point. Wow. How the fuck do you keep making mistakes that just happen to qualify as federal crimes? Because you're dumb. Like, that check was a government check. That's why it's a federal crime. Mm. A lot of the stupid shit he did involved taking, like, stolen cars across state lines. If you cross state lines while you're committing a crime, it's a federal crime. Yep. That's the kind of shit I'm talking about. Mm, Up until this point, Manson's life had a clear and discernible pattern. Commit a fairly petty offense that ends up qualifying as a federal crime. Dumbass. Get caught. Do your time or get sentenced to probation and then not follow the rules of the probation. Go to jail. <laughs> um, again, some of his time was spent in jail, but most of it was in prisons, because that's for the longer sentences, and I know that. Um, anyway, get out on parole. Mm-hmm. Violate parole. Go back to prison. Sometimes... <laughs> Some people just don't learn. Sometimes you just gotta be like, hey, what am I doing wrong here? Maybe try to figure that out. But no. Maybe I should stop being a dumbass. But yeah, so this cycle had been going on for over 17 years, and like, honestly, his behavior did not change. You would think if somebody had been doing something for most of their life experiencing the same results and refusing to change their behavior, that their life would just continue to go on in the same way that it has been. Mm-hmm. Any sane person would think that. Mm-hmm. Not true. <laughs> so within days of his release in 1967, Manson violated his parole by leaving Los Angeles without permission. He headed to Berkeley, California. Miraculously, When he phoned the San Francisco Federal Parole Office and informed them that he'd moved without permission, which you can't do when you're on parole, they simply filed some transfer paperwork and assigned him to a new parole officer named Roger Smith. That's not how parole works. He should have gone back to prison. Oh my goodness. Oh, oh, it's gonna get weirder. Oh good. I'm so glad. Um, If you're a big fan of Vincent Bugliosi and Quick Pause, I'm going to keep fucking pausing every time I have to say his last name. It's because apparently I've been saying that wrong my whole life. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with Midi Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause, and MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts, 
They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Now I have to try to say it the new way, which means I have to pause before I say it. <laughs> anyway, if you're a fan of Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter book, you're probably mentally correcting me right now. Or hey, maybe you're doing it out loud. Like, who am I to judge? I fucking talk to myself. It's fine. Either way, I'm here to tell you that Bugliosi mm, took some factual liberties is the nicest way I can think of to say that he's full of shit. <laughs> so in Helter Skelter, um, he claims that Manson requested and received permission to go to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That's not fucking true. <clears throat> um, Tom O'Neill actually found documented evidence after obtaining a portion of Manson's parole file via a ugh, Freedom of Information Act request in the form of a letter dated April 11th, 1967. That's important because April 11th, 1967 was three weeks after Manson was released from prison. Mm-hmm. This letter is from the San Francisco parole office to the Los Angeles office, notifying them that Manson had relocated to Berkeley and stating they were accepting his transfer to the Northern District of California. What that means is he clearly did not notify the LA parole office and request permission to go to San Francisco. Or they wouldn't be getting fucking informed three weeks after the fact that that happened. Mm-hmm. Roger Smith, the parole officer. Um, not only do you hear that name and be like, ugh, who really named their kid that? <laughs> Someone did. Okay. But it turns out he's a very shadowy figure. So let's talk about him. Um, Tom O'Neill actually managed to track down Roger Smith and asked him, a series of questions in a rather lengthy interview hoping to get some answers about some of the oddities in Manson's parole file well the little portion of it we're able to actually access anymore and when he spoke with Smith he seemed hazy on the details of just how he ended up becoming Manson's parole officer but Smith indicated that he'd received the assignment as part of the San Francisco Project, an experimental program funded by the National Institute of Mental Health that aimed to monitor the rehabilitative process of parolees. Perhaps even stranger is the fact that the San Francisco Project essentially had three categories of parole officers that were involved in this study. So, I forget what the actual terms were because I didn't write them down, but it was basically uh, different types of caseloads. So some of them had a really heavy load, some of them had like a moderate load, and some of them had a really light load. And they were trying to determine how much it impacts 
like whether or not a parolee has a positive rehabilitative experience when their parole officer has like a ton of cases mm-hmm. is pretty much what they were trying to figure out. <clears throat> so weirdly, Roger Smith was in that middle group, that moderate group where he was supposed to have a caseload of 40 parolees for this project. By the end of 1967, Smith was down to just one, hmm. Charles Manson. Hmm. How? Hmm. If that's not strange enough, Smith, who was working on his PhD at UC Berkeley at the time, had done a bunch of research studying the link between violent behavior and illicit drug use. The study Smith and his colleagues conducted found evidence suggesting that drug use often triggered violent behavior in gangs rather than mellowing them out. In spite of all of that research that he'd already done, Smith admitted to O'Neill that it was his idea to send Manson to live in the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco. That's the community that's often cited as the focal point of the 60s countercultural movement. According to Roger Smith, he thought perhaps the peace and love atmosphere might moderate Manson's anger issues. You know, never mind the fact that they're doing a shit ton of drugs there, and he had already done some fairly extensive research suggesting that drug use will make you angrier and more violent, but whatever. Mm-hmm. That's fine. He probably didn't even read his own research, right? Whatever. <laughs> totally, totally normal. Totally normal. So upon relocating to hate Ashbury, Manson began to drop acid on a daily basis. According to Smith's reports, Manson's behavior greatly improved after the LSD use began. By the way, LSD was illegal in California at the time, so the fact that his parole officer knew that Manson, a fucking person out on parole, was breaking the law should have involved him yet again going back to prison. Mm -hmm. Didn't happen. Okay. This guy sucks at his job. (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) So, whether or not Manson's behavior actually improved, we do know that he changed in some ways, um, namely his outward appearance. So, this is the period in time where he started growing his hair long and adopted the look of a hippie. So, kind of the look that we all know today. Yeah. Meanwhile... Smith is writing these fucking glowing reports about Manson's behavior. In one report, dated July 31st, 1967, Smith wrote that Manson, quote, appeared to be in better shape personally, end quote, than he'd been in for many years. Meanwhile, actual Manson was physically sitting in a jail cell following a conviction for interference with a police officer in the line of duty. (laughs) The charge stemmed from his attempt to prevent the arrest of Ruth Ann Morehouse, a.k.a. Weesh, and I don't fucking know what that means. I tried to figure it out for a really long time. It's some kind of French slang. I assume it's a sex act, but I don't know. <laughs> and apparently neither does the internet. So All right. I'm just going to keep... By the way, every single fucking person in the Manson family has a nickname. 
I'm gonna be trying to avoid those nicknames for the most part because A, it makes it really confusing. It made it confusing for me researching this. I have to imagine it'll make it confusing for you listening to it. <clears throat> um, unfortunately, I can't get away with that 100% because one of the main people that we need to talk about is also named Charles. Mm. Charles Watson, so I'm gonna yeah. have to call him Tex even though I was gonna try not to do that because otherwise it's too fucking confusing. You don't so, have to say his last name every time. No. It's like, ugh, I couldn't find a better way to do it. So that's what we're doing. So anyway, um, Manson had been trying to prevent the arrest of Ruth Ann Morehouse, one of the underage followers he'd recently recruited. So yet again, just four months after he was released, Manson should have been sent back to prison for violating his parole. Instead, he got released within a matter of days on three years probation. And that's it. Great. Great. If that's not weird enough, we will never know what other secrets might lie in the rest of Manson's parole file. Very few people have even ever seen the whole thing. Hmm. Like, during the trial for the Tate LaBianca murders, Manson's attorney, Irving Kanarek, subpoenaed the file like during the penalty phase thinking that there might be something in there he could use to help save manson from the death penalty because like at that point he's already been convicted and he's basically digging for anything that he can find to get him sentenced to life in prison and not the death penalty mm -hmm. okay so in response to that subpoena the acting united states attorney general John Mitchell refused to release the file. And then he sent David Anderson, a DOJ official, to help Vincent Bugliosi quash Canarek's subpoena to prevent the file being released. Hmm. That's pretty much unheard of. Mm -hmm. Even after exhaustive Freedom of Information Act appeals, O'Neill himself only obtained copies of 69 parole documents from a file that at the time of the Tate LaBianca trial was described as being four inches thick. Despite the meager percentage of documents O'Neill managed to obtain, he writes, quote, under Smith's supervision, Manson was repeatedly arrested and even convicted without being sent back to prison. It was up to Smith to revoke Manson's parole, so it was ultimately his decision, but he never even reported any of his clients' violations to his, well, to his supervisors, end quote. Mm -hmm. That's from page 292. In spite of all of this, Smith told O'Neill he was never questioned by anyone, like no federal agency, not Vincent Bugliosi, not even the police, about Manson. And of course, that means he wasn't called as a witness at the Tate LaBianca trial. And it all begs the question, why? If that's not enough for you, apparently, none of us ever will get to see this file. Because... According to Pamela A. Posh, a parole commission spokesperson, the Bureau of Prisons didn't retain all of Manson's parole documents. 
a situation Poche admitted was unusual as the Bureau's policy is to preserve files of notorious felons for history. There are a few felons more notorious than Charles Manson, yet a bunch of his documents were just apparently tossed. So then O'Neill had another idea. He was like, hey, maybe I could obtain the file from the San Francisco project, which as a federally funded study would have required even stricter than usual documentation to be kept on any participant. And Manson supposedly was one. Yeah, guess what? Hmm. That file's also missing. Oh my gosh. Hmm. Oh, and if that's not enough, Following an FAOI request in 1976, the National Institute of Mental Health, you know, the people that were funding the San Francisco project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were forced to admit that they'd allowed the CIA to use it as a funding front during the 1960s. That's fantastic. Well, we're going to come back to that next week. Oh, good. All right. Great. I'm, 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 words be pissed because it's not good. (laughs) I love that. Be pissed. Oh, I plan to be. (laughs) In April 1968, Manson was yet again arrested. Oh, God. This time in connection with a stolen bus after he and some of his followers had the misfortune of getting said bus stuck in a ditch in Deer Canyon off of the Pacific Coast Highway. All right, I got a question. What kind of bus? We're talking like Greyhound, school bus? I think it's one of those, like, Volkswagen Oh, gotcha. Okay. But I don't know. That would make Um, sense. Volkswagen bus, yeah. I mean, there's a Volkswagen bus in a different part of this that I know for sure was a Volkswagen bus. But the article that I was reading just said bus. I'm just like, see him at the head of the, like, speed style. Like, if we slow down, it's... (laughs) It could even be a school bus for all I know. I don't know. I don't know why. I just find that image in my head so fucking funny. Jeez. Anyway, a deputy investigating the bus, which he could see was stuck in a ditch, uh found 14 nude hippies asleep in the weeds. That's phenomenal. Yup. And then after running a check on the vehicle's tags, the deputy found a report that the bus was supposedly stolen. So all 14 members of the Manson family present at the scene were arrested. The story made news headlines in several papers, so Smith was unable to keep the situation hidden from his superiors this time. The chief of the San Francisco parole office, Albert Wall, caught wind of an article in the Oakland Tribune and flew into a rage at finding out one of his office's parolees had been involved. He contacted Angus McEachin, chief of the L.A. office, to request assistance locating Manson. Because, like, he is basically like, his ass is grass at this point. Mm -hmm. The men were on a mission to send him back to prison for parole violations. Roger Smith, at this point, was terminated from his position as a parole officer. And I think we can all say, yeah. Finally. Makes sense. Yeah. Probably should have already happened. Well deserved. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, you can probably imagine Mickey Chin's frustration upon learning that Manson had spent only one day in jail before being released after being found to be the legal owner of the bus. Wow. But then Manson got arrested again, this time on a drug charge. And McEachin thought he'd finally gotten the upper hand because Manson was sitting in the L.A. County Jail awaiting arraignment on that charge. Mysteriously, when McEachin attempted to close in on him, he found that the slippery parolee had once again gone free. For unexplained reasons, the DA declined to file charges, so Manson had been let go the previous day. This is one hard motherfucker to send back to prison. I'd say. And yet it hadn't been prior to 1967. What changed? That would be the question. <laughs> After months of effort, a letter was issued through Manson's new parole officer, Samuel Barrett, on June 12, 1968, informing him that he had 12 days to return to San Francisco. Failure to comply would result in his return to prison. By this time, Manson and his girls were living with Beach Boy, Dennis Wilson, in Los Angeles. Oh, no. That deadline came and went. Manson did not return to San Francisco, and there is no explanation in the available documents from his parole file as to what exactly kept Manson from having his parole revoked that time. Hmm. Some force more powerful than the two parole office chiefs must have stepped in to cause that deadline to just dissipate. Mm -hmm. But who or what? Jagger Hoover. I mean, you fucking know with that motherfucker. <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't know. What we do know is that the next available letters from McEachin are dated late July and early August 1968. And in these, he informs the Washington office that Manson had by this point moved on to living at Spawn Ranch. Okay. Literally no mention of the whole, we gave him an ultimatum and then he didn't do it, and the, but then you said we couldn't send him, nope, nothing. My brain hurts. Okay, so now we're going to jump forward a little bit in time to July 1969. All right. Moon launch. Moon landing. Moon launch. <laughs> we launched the moon somewhere? I guess. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Why did we launch it? Mars? Why? Why not? Okay, this has gone far enough. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Gary Hinman, age 34, lived in Topanga Canyon, a hippie community approximately 15 miles south of Spawn Ranch. Hinman, a music teacher, had a friendly relationship with the Manson family. In fact, he'd hosted members of the family for long stays in his secluded home on more than one occasion, and beyond that, He'd generously given them food or money whenever it was needed. Yet this was not enough to protect him from Charlie's mercurial temperament. In July of 1969, Manson became convinced that Hinman had inherited $20,000. So he ordered three followers to go to Hinman's house and get the money Mm -hmm. by any means necessary. Mm On July 25th, Bobby Boussoleil, Mary Brunner, it could be Bruner, I'm not really sure I forgot to check, (laughs) Uh, and Susan Atkins showed up at Hinman's house and demanded the money. Mm -hmm. Hinman told them repeatedly that Charlie was mistaken. He did not have $20,000. But Manson's cronies didn't believe Hinman. They tied him up and turned the house upside down, searching every conceivable place for the cash, and found nothing. When the group reported their findings to Manson, Charlie remained unconvinced. So he came out to the house with fellow um, Manson family member Bruce Davis to see for himself. Manson had no more luck than the first party of followers had. Then he grew enraged with Hinman and used a saber, yes, a fucking saber, like a sword, to cut Hinman's ear in half. <laughs> Could have achieved that with a regular knife, Charlie. Listen, he's extra. He needs a sword. Over dramatic as fuck. Compensating. <laughs> because... <laughs> In case you didn't know this, Charles Manson was short. I actually didn't He know was that. a short little Napoleonic motherfucker. How short was he? Like five foot something. I'm a check. I just want to know if I'm taller than him. He's a little guy. He's like a little. He's not a hobbit. I was going to say he's. he was 5'2". I was taller than him. We are both taller. That's amazing. I am full three inches taller than Charles Manson. So Holy he was shit. a little he was a little five foot two inch tall motherfucker who's like barely taller than Ariana Grande. Aww. And he he didn't handle it well. <laughs> <laughs> That's adorable. So he had to compensate for being a little guy with the sword. With a big sword. A big fucking sword. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Let's say a lightsaber, but Star Wars wasn't out yet. <laughs> no, it wasn't. History. <laughs> <laughs> so in 
So anyway, after the ear slicing, (laughs) Davis and Manson left, but Charlie ordered Bobby and the girls to stay until they found the money, which I think we can all agree probably didn't fucking exist. Because, like, they would have found it by now. Mm -hmm. Despite taking the measure of sewing up Hinman's injured ear with dental floss, which, like, At least you tried? No, wait. Was it mint flavored? I don't know. Wait for it. Oh, God. Anyway, even though they did that thing, uh, (laughs) listen, they did that, even though they did that piece of shit effort at, you know, taking care of him, uh, Bobby, Susan, and Mary proceeded to torture Hinman for two full fucking days. So they're like, let me sew up your ear because it probably hurts, but then I had to beat you because I'm an asshole. Yeah. If you want to torture him, just use the mint-flavored fucking dental floss. It'll probably sting. Did they even fucking have that in 1969? I don't fucking know. Probably not. we don't need to go down this rabbit hole. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Anyway, the whole time he was being tortured, he continued to insist that he hadn't received the money, which, like, I'm going to go ahead and say... At that point, I'd be like, if I don't give it to them, I'm probably going to die. Right. And I would have given it to them, and I'm pretty sure he would have too. So I think we can all say he didn't didn't fucking have have the money. He did not have it. On the third day, Manson ordered Hinman's death over the phone and told his followers to make it look like the murder was the work of the Black Panthers. In case you didn't know this already, Manson was racist. No. As fuck. What? And he did not like the Black Panthers, so he was like, frighten the Black Panthers. Can't imagine why. Because Manson was a racist piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) Who really loved Adolf Hitler. Wow, I'm so shook by that. Yeah, so. Uh, Anyway, Bobby Boussoulet stabbed Hinman four times while the poor dying man recited a Buddhist prayer. Aw, that makes me sad. Then Mary and Susan took turns smothering Hinman with a pillow until he finally stopped breathing. Hmm. For murderers, they're not very good at murdering people. That's going to be an ongoing theme. Like, they'll, oh, get the jo- they'll get the job done, but it's going to be a piece of shit work just like that sewn up ear. You know, I feel like that is more often than not the theme with a lot of these serial killers is, you know what? You got the job done, but you kind of sucked at it. Looking at you, BTK. <laughs> That's exactly who I was also <coughs> thinking of. Like, you killed a bunch of people, so, like, I guess you did it, but you suck, so you probably should have found something else to do. Just saying. You're not very good at it. Maybe channel your rage into, like, a violent video game or something. Find a new calling, maybe. Yeah. That doesn't involve murder. Yeah. Go break some stuff. Actually, that's just always my advice in life. Find a calling that doesn't involve murder. It's a shirt. It's not. It should be. It might be, it but I be. don't know. It depends <laughs> when I have time to do a thing. Um. So afterward, they dipped a rag in Hinman's blood and used it to write the words political piggy on the living room wall. And then they surrounded it with bloody paw prints because that was their idea on how they were going to... Frame the Black Panthers. Did they know that they weren't actually Panthers? <laughs> I feel like maybe no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you guys know it's just a name, right? <laughs> Never mind the fact that pretty sure they made the palm prints 
with their hands, which would be handprints. But hey, what do I know? I'm not a serial killer. I fucking hate people. <laughs> I'm not a serial killer. Pause. <laughs> I fucking hate people. <laughs> I do. Like, why would you put paw? It, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't make sense. The paw prints are stupid, but they were high a lot. So oh, well, there you go. The paw prints are stupid, and so were they. So <laughs> they are not very smart, and also they did a lot of drugs. So. Trying to figure that out is probably pointless. Um, on July 31st, a few of Hinman's friends drove over to the house because they'd gotten very concerned about not hearing from their friend for six days. Upon arriving, they found his body and notified the L.A. County Sheriff's Office because that's whose jurisdiction they were in. Uh, LASO homicide detectives Charles Gunther and Paul Whiteley were assigned to the case. For five days, they combed the scene for evidence and conducted interviews, during which time they discovered that while no one had seen or spoken to Gary in the days leading up to the body being discovered, there had been a woman answering his phone. One friend who'd stopped by a few days earlier even reported a woman answering the door when he'd gotten there. Hmm. She'd been holding a candle and spoke in a very bad British accent. (laughs) That was definitely fake. (laughs) Can't even fake an accent right. And she claimed Hinman had gone to Colorado to visit his parents. Oh gosh. I really want to try a really bad British <coughs> accent, but I probably do can't it. do it. But the good news is, if it's bad, it doesn't matter. It's supposed to be. Like, it's supposed to be bad, but I don't know if I can intentionally do it badly. I gotcha. I understand. No, I'm not going to do it. I have a headache anyway. It's okay. a bad idea. Sorry, guys. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, Gunther and Whiteley issued an APB. That's an all-points bulletin, in case you somehow don't know that. I did know that. For the two vehicles that were missing from Hinman's driveway, a Volkswagen microbus, there's the bus, and a Fiat station wagon. On August 7th, a state trooper located the station wagon alongside the highway in San Luis Obispo, approximately 189 miles north of Los Angeles. That's a lot of miles. A lot of miles. Sleeping inside the vehicle was Bobby Boussolet. Oh, there he is. He got arrested. <laughs> yes! Good! After being taken into custody, Boussolet was questioned by Whiteley and Gunther. Uh, and initially, Bobby claimed he didn't know Hinman and said that he'd bought the Fiat a few days earlier from a Black Panther. When confronted with the fact that the murder weapon had been found in the Fiat's tire well. Like, worst killers ever. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Boussolet. Well. Yeah. And he's sleeping in the fucking car that they stole from the person they murdered. It's like, you're just dumb. <sighs> uh, anyway, so after he was confronted with that, Boussolet changed his story. So now he's like, oh yeah, I was in that guy's house. But it was me and these two women, who he refused to identify, because, like, when you haven't done anything wrong, you always refuse to identify the other people that were with you, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, Anyway, he said they'd arrived at the property to find Hinman tied up and badly beaten. Mm -hmm. According to Bobby, Hinman told him and his female companions that he'd been robbed and attacked by several Black Panthers. So the three of them cared for the injured man and nursed him back to health. 
As a token of gratitude, Gary Hinman had gifted the fiat to his good Samaritans. Yeah, he just gave it to them, because of course you do. Because that's what people do, After right? you've already been robbed by other people, you just give your card. I mean, listen, what? Yeah, that's what I would do. Sure, yeah. Please, have my car. Thank you. Fuck you. Since Hinman was alive when they left him, Bobby suggested that the Black Panthers must have returned in search of more money and murdered Hinman. Of course, none of that could explain how the murder weapon ended up in the car that he was driving. Confident they'd found their guy, Whiteley and Gunther charged Bobby Boussoulet with first-degree murder, but they knew they were missing at least one accomplice the girl who'd answered the door and the phone. So the search wasn't totally over. The fake British lady. So he was booked for the murder on August 7th. So the next day, August 8th, 1969, about one hour after dinner, Charlie Manson calls Charles Tex Watson, age 23, who I will be calling Tex or Watson for the rest of this because I'm not fucking dealing with two Charlies. Right. Uh, Susan Atkins, 21, Patricia Krenwinkel, 21, and Linda Kasabian, 20, aside, and instructed them to each get a change of clothes and a knife. Because that's what you want to hear after dinner, right? Yeah. Listen, get a change of clothes and a knife. I'd be like, why is there cake? No. Then why am I getting a knife, Charlie? (laughs) Murder. I'd rather murder a cake. I would love to murder a cake, (laughs) but that's why my pants are tight, so no. Um, Linda was also told to get her driver's license. Now, you might think that's a little weird, but it turns out she was the only member of the Manson family with a valid license other than Mary Brunner or Brunner again. I don't fucking know how to say that. Fortunately, she doesn't have a big part in this story, but she was currently in jail. So this is almost certainly the entire reason that Linda was sent with them. Right. Because she had a valid ID and they could be like, oh no, like she was driving totally fine. Yeah. I say this because Linda had only been with the family a month Mm -hmm. when this happened. Right. The other three people he picked had all been with him for a year or longer. Yeah, so they could pin stuff on her. Well, I don't know if it was to pin it on her so much as it was to help them hopefully not get arrested if they got pulled over. Probably a little of both, I would think. Linda had been unable to find her knife. Like, everybody apparently had a knife because I think it was Squeaky From had, like, bought a whole bunch of knives. Mm -hmm. But Linda couldn't find hers. So she had to borrow one from Lawrence Bailey. The borrowed knife had a broken handle that had been basically roughly fixed with tape. Okay. That's going to be important later. Shortly afterward, Nancy Pittman had found Linda's license, so she went over and handed that to her. And right around that time, Charlie told Linda that she was supposed to go with Tex and do whatever he says. Tex, Susan, Patricia, and Linda, all dressed in dark clothing got in Johnny Swartz's old 1959 Ford Galaxy. Quick pause. How come so many weird crimes that we do involve Ford Galaxies? That's really weird. Stop buying Ford Galaxies. I don't even know if they still make those. I don't think they do. 
They probably stopped because they were like, <laughs> murder. Everybody's using our cars to murder, so fuck, we'll just take the car off the line. We're done. We're not doing this anymore. Well, nope. you should have spelled galaxy correctly. That was probably your whole problem. It's not an IE. It's a fucking Y. You okay? People were murdering with the four galaxy because they were enraged over the spelling. No, I don't think that's why, but it's just like really weird to me that we've had more than one. It's like, not why, it's IE. <laughs> I'm flipping Jess off. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't let that go anyway. Fuck you. Back yeah, to the story. We're, we're still friends, right? We always are. Okay, good. Sometimes we just tell each other to fuck off, <laughs> and that's okay. That defines true friendship, though. So it really does. Uh, Tex handed Linda a 22 caliber longhorn revolver and three knives and asked her to wrap them up in a rag. If they got pulled over, she was supposed to throw them out of the car. Which, like, can I just tell right. you? Can I just tell you that, like, I know it was dark, but I'm pretty sure the cops would have seen that. Are they throwing it out of the driver's side or the passenger side? I'm assuming the passenger side, because that's where she was sitting. But it's like, if you got pulled over and there's a fucking cop <laughs> right there. Yeah, right. Oh, dude, what are you doing? I don't know. Uh, just, they do a lot of shit that's not very smart, but whatever. Um, just as Tex started to drive away, Manson stopped them, leaned in the window, and said, Leave a sign. You girls know what to write. Something witchy. Something witchy. I love it. I don't know. Something witchy this way comes, I guess. I was gonna say that! Holy shit! (laughs) Maybe that's the title of the episode. (laughs) Yeah, right? So that other fucking thing I can't find. (laughs) As they drove, Tex said nothing about what they were going to do. And he really wouldn't give them any specifics about where they were going. He did say that he'd been to the house before and knew the layout. That's it, though. When they arrived at Cielo Drive around midnight the morning of August 9th, Tex drove the old galaxy up to the gate of... I'm going to have the same problem I had before. Quick thing. I read addresses weirdly, I think, because, like, I try to break big addresses into smaller numbers. Mm -hmm. So, like, if a house was 3175, I'd probably read that 3175. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the way I've always heard people do it, and so that's the way I do it. Yeah. Every time I see the address for... The Tate Polanski house, I want to say 150. Mm-hmm. I want to say 150. Right. Because that's the numbers. <clears throat> but that's fucking wrong. Mm-hmm. The address is 10,050. Right. So if I accidentally, at any point in this episode or the next episode, say it wrong, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm not stupid. That's just yeah. how I read it in my head. And so that's... It's not 150. It's the number 100 and, and then the, the number, number 50. 50. <laughs> so it's 10,050. And I'm going to try not to do that, but it might happen. Yeah. So they pulled up to the gate of 10,050 and parked next to a telephone pole. At that point, Tex grabbed a large pair of red-handled wire cutters from the back seat of the car and fucking climbed a telephone pole. I would die if I had to climb a telephone pole, so I don't like it. No. Uh, but apparently he was like, whatever, I got this. Thanks, I hate it. 
He was also six foot three as opposed to teeny tiny Charlie. So <laughs> it's like teeny tiny five two. Maybe he just kinda hopped, I don't know. He just jumped really far. I'm just jealous of how tall some people are. It's fine. I know it's annoying. It's amazing I wanna be tall. I wanna be six five. Actually I don't. No, that's too much. Six. Six. We're like five ten maybe. I don't fucking know. I'd probably get dizzy that high. <laughs> Anyway, when he'd gotten high enough to reach, he cut the phone wires. Okay. Um, the girls obviously couldn't see that happen so much, but they were still in the car, which was right there, so they could see the wires actually fall, so that's how they knew what had happened. Okay. When Tex got back in the car, they drove down the hill and parked at the bottom of it. Then each of them got out of the car with their weapon and their extra clothing and started walking up the hill. Tex had one extra thing, which was some white rope that he had thrown over his shoulder. That's gonna be important, in case you don't know. I figured if it wasn't, you probably wouldn't have mentioned it. Unsure of how to get through the gate, which just we're gesturing like just confusedly right now. Do it. They, apparently they couldn't see the button or like didn't know where the button was. I don't fucking know. Okay, they weren't sure how to get through the gate. So they decided to climb an embankment and climb the fence instead. Which is a much harder thing to do than find a button. They are not intelligent. You said that, not me. Yes, I did. And I stand by it. I don't disagree with you. I just don't <laughs> want to get yelled at for calling people stupid because it's happened before. I didn't call them stupid. I said they were not intelligent. <laughs> I did not say the S word. What? Well, fuck it. They're stupid. Okay? Come What's at the me. opposite of intelligent? Don't say unintelligent. <laughs> <laughs> don't water in your face. I almost said something else and I was like, no, don't say that. I'll <laughs> tell you. Well, you can tell recording. me later. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably upsetting for people. <coughs> so anyway, they're like, hey, uh, I apparently don't know how to get through this gate, so I'm going to climb this embankment and then climb over a fence. And that's how they got onto the property. Um, just as they were dropping down on the other side, they were startled by a pair of headlights that had appeared in the driveway. I really, for some reason, I thought you were going to say pigeons. I don't know why. <laughs> I really thought you were going to say that they were startled by a bunch of pigeons. I was going to be like, oh, okay. that's funny. Okay. <laughs> Clay or bird? I mean, that's valid, but a bird. Okay. Actual birds. <laughs> Listen, I don't fucking know what's going on in your head, so I'm gonna ask. I forgot that the clay ones were called pigeons, so. <laughs> Tex ordered the women to lay down and be quiet, and then he ran over to the car, a white rambler, which had come to a stop near the control mechanism for the gate. You know, the thing they fucking <laughs> used to get in and out of it! <laughs> The driver, um, an 18-year-old named Steve, I'm assuming you pronounce it parent and not parent for some reason. How's it spelled? Like, like parent. parent. Okay. I'm just going to say parent. That's wrong. Yell at me, but I didn't check that one because I'm like, that's just a dictionary word, right? Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> he was the driver of the car. He begged for his life briefly and raised his left arm, most likely to try to protect himself, like, as a defensive movement. Yeah. Tex slashed Parent's left 
hand and wrist with his knife, severing the strap of the wristwatch and cutting through his tendons. So, yeah, that would have hurt really bad. damn. Then he fired four shots into the car, striking Parent in his left cheek and arm, Ah. and the other two shots into the chest, Mm. killing him instantly, which... It's pretty much what you imagine when you hear two shots to the chest. My next question before you said that was, did he survive? <laughs> I really wanted a good outcome oh, for him. No, honey, nobody survives. I know, but I just, I got optimistic for a second. Don't do that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Stay down in the gutter with me. Especially when we're talking about the Manson family. Always assume everything's going to be bad. And then if something's good, you'll be pleasantly surprised. That, yeah, good. It's a good model for life. That's how I do life, but apparently that's <laughs> wrong. Um, anyway, next, Watson reached into the car so that he could switch off the lights and the ignition. Um, and according to Linda Kasabian, he pushed the car a short distance back up the driveway away from the gate control before he called to them that they could come out now. Mr. and Mrs. Seymour Cott, because women don't fucking get first names in these books, and it... Oh, I'm sorry, that's a thing for me. I don't like, like, Mr. and Mrs. is one thing, but it really fucking annoys me when we don't get first names then, because we have to keep their first name. Fuck you. No woman wants to be called Seymour. <laughs> Listen, I really don't like Vincimple Yossi, <coughs> so I'm probably gonna lash out at him a lot. Quick side note, whenever you say Seymour, I think of Little Shop of Horrors. Right now, I have a giant, what the fuck is the name of that plant, going, feed me, Seymour! A Venus flytrap. That's the thing. That's okay, because I'm thinking something way more embarrassing than that, and I'm not going to say it while we're recording. Alright. I don't want everyone to judge me, we'll talk about it after. Okay. Um... So anyway, they're the residents of 10,070 Cielo Drive, which is physically the closest neighbors to the Tate Polanski house. Um, They were approximately 100 yards away. Mrs. Cott, because women don't get first names in the 60s, apparently, would later tell investigators she thought she heard either three or four gunshots. Um, She had not checked the time but estimated that she'd heard the sounds between 12.30 and 1 a.m. That would have had to have been at the car, by the way, in case you put it together, listeners. Um, when they reached the house, Tex told Linda to go around back and look for an unlocked door or window. According to Linda, she went, but didn't really check anything. Mm-hmm. So she just came back and was like, oh, everything's locked. <laughs> Um, it turns out that that was a lie. Ah. There was an open window leading into the freshly painted nursery that night. Oh, no. But, you know, I guess Tex was just like, all right, well, she checked. Uh, <laughs> and I'm assuming that Linda was like, hey, if everything's locked, maybe we can leave because mm-hmm. you already murdered someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, it did not work. So, undeterred Tex used a knife to put a horizontal slit in the screen of one of the dining room windows. Mm-hmm. And that's how he was planning on getting into the house. Mm-hmm. He then set 
Linda back to the driveway and told her she was supposed to wait by the car and basically be a lookout. Mm -hmm. About a minute or two after she got out to the car, Patricia ran out and was like, I need your knife. Mm -hmm. And then she ran back in the house. Mm -hmm. So Tex entered through that dining room window, then walked around to the front door and let Susan and Patricia in the house. In the living room, they found... Wojtek Frykowski, and here's the thing, he's Polish. His actual first name, I can't say it. Uh, It's a lot of consonants Mm -hmm. that in, you know, American English we don't put together. So Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it. Wojtek is a nickname. I'm sticking with that because I'd rather call him a nickname that people know than fuck up his first name repeatedly. I like it. And also, I'm going to say Frykowski a lot anyway, because I'm sure that that's right. So, (laughs) that's what we're going to do. Anyway, uh, Wojtek, age 32, was asleep on the couch, which had an American flag draped over the back. Frykowski and his girlfriend, Abigail, had been staying at the house since April. Uh, Frykowski woke up somewhat disoriented, which I think we've all fucking been there. You wake up out of a deep sleep, you don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, he, it it seems like he might have mistaken the intruders for friends at first. Mm -hmm. Because he asked them what time it was. Like, you wouldn't just ask some person that, like, broke into the house what time it is. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Tex answered him by putting a gun in his face and telling him to be quiet. Hmm, that's rude. Yep. So, Frykowski, now afraid for his life, asked, who are you? Mm-hmm. Tex answered, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business, and then kicked him in the head. Fuck you, Tex. Susan Atkins went to the linen closet <laughs> where she was able to locate a towel that she used to kind of crudely tie Wojtek's hands. Mm-hmm. I don't think she did a very good job, but we'll get back to that. A towel? Yeah, listen, that's what she did. I don't know. Can't explain their bad decisions. Then she was sent to search the house for other people. As she walked around, Atkins saw Abigail Folger, age 25, heiress to the Folger Coffee Fortune, reading Uh a book in one of the bedrooms. In a second bedroom... Atkins saw Sharon Tate Polanski, age 26, who was eight months pregnant at the time, lying on the bed talking to Jay Sebring, age 35, her ex-boyfriend who was sitting on the bed with her. Having found no one else in the house, Susan returned to Tex and reported that she'd seen three other people. She then rebound Frykowski's hands, this time using nylon rope, which if you fucking had that the whole time, the towel... uh, (laughs) Anyway, then Tex was like, go get everybody else. So first she returned with Abigail at knife point and then made a second trip to retrieve Sharon and Jay. Gathered in the living room, the group begged the intruders not to hurt anyone and offered them money and basically anything else that they could think of, like Mm -hmm. anything they wanted, if they would just not hurt them. Mm -hmm. Tex responded by ordering Sharon, Jay, and Abigail to get on the ground um, in front of the fireplace and they were supposed to get down on their stomachs. Again, Sharon is eight months fucking pregnant. Mm Mm-hmm. How is she supposed to get on her stomach, Tex? That's not gonna happen. Fucking how? Mm-hmm. 
I'm gesturing emphatically because I'm upset, but it's fine. Anyway. Get on your stomach. Bro, I literally can't. <laughs> of course, Sharon began to cry because, like, not only is she eight months pregnant and full of all those pregnancy hormones, but she's fucking scared. And mm -hmm. now she's being told to do something by someone with a weapon, and she can't really do that. She can't do it because she's fucking pregnant. Yeah. <clears throat> um, anyway, Tex is an asshole, so he told her to shut up. Mm-hmm. And then he grabbed a long rope which he used to bind jay's hands behind his back and then ran a length around his neck he then looped the rope around sharon's neck and finally abigail's before throwing the remaining length up over a ceiling beam now jay managed to get to his feet and he tried to intercede for sharon couldn't tex see that she was pregnant like basically what the fuck <clears throat> like leave her alone mm-hmm of course, that didn't go over well. Mm -hmm. um, as you can probably imagine, the response is violent. By the way, things are going to get super graphic from this point on. So... Yeah, if you don't know the story of Sharon Tate and you don't like you hearing should... about violence to pregnant women, you might want to fast forward a little bit. Things are going to get super graphic. I actually don't know if you're going to want to listen to this episode at all from this point on. If, if that's something that bothers you. And that's totally fine. I'm just letting you know. If violence and blood and gore and stuff bothers you, maybe come back next week. We'll understand. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That was probably enough time for them to turn it off, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. When Jay tried to move toward Sharon, Tex shot him. The bullet punctured Sebring's lung and <clears throat> sent him crumpling to the floor. His collapse then forced Abigail and Sharon, who again were linked to him all with rope around their neck, mm -hmm. up onto the tips of their toes to avoid being strangled. Mm -hmm. I guess that wasn't enough to satisfy Tex because he then got down on his knees and stabbed Jay repeatedly. Mm -hmm. When he stood back up, he kicked him in the head. 
actually gonna stop kicking people in the head, you dick. Apparently he likes it. Tex then told Patricia Krenwinkel to turn out the lights. Somehow, Frykowski freed his hands from his bindings, because I'm thinking Susan Atkins sucks at tying people up. It's a fair assessment. So he lunged at Susan in an attempt to disarm her, and a scuffle basically starts. Um, she manages to stab him in the leg, which, fuck, that would really hurt. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but Wojtek, I'm gonna say, if there's one person in this story who is an absolute fucking fighter, it's it's this guy. So he refuses to get up, to give up. He keeps fighting her. Mm-hmm. At this point, she stabbed him several times, but bleeding from multiple wounds, he still manages to get up on his feet and make a run for the front door. Atkins, having lost her knife in the struggle, is just, like, trying to beat him with her fists at this point. But he makes it out onto the lawn before Tex shoots him twice. And even that doesn't drop him, so then he tackles him to the ground. Oh, it's about to get bad. So, tackling him to the ground wasn't enough. So then Tex proceeded to beat the already gravely injured man in the head with the butt of the revolver with so much force, it shattered the right side of the grip and cracked Frykowski's skull. Back in the living room, Tate sobbed in fear and desperation. As Abigail, having managed to get the noose off from around her neck, fled down the hallway, exiting the house through a side door. Clad in her nightgown, the coffee heiress made it about halfway across the front lawn before Patricia caught up with her and brought her to the ground, stabbing her 28 times. Watson joined in as well before Abigail said her final words. I give up. I'm already dead. Take me. Mm -hmm. Patricia and Tex rose from the grass just in time to see Frykowski yet again up on his feet. Jesus. And he was coming right at them. This dude, man. Together, the killers stabbed him repeatedly until he finally stopped moving. Throughout all the commotion on the lawn, Susan Atkins remained in the living room guarding Sharon Tate. When Watson came back inside, he instructed Atkins to kill her. Sharon begged for her life and the life of her unborn child, a boy who was due in just two weeks. I want to have my baby, she cried. Atkins replied, Woman, I have no mercy for you. You're going to die, and I don't feel anything about it. And proceeded to stab Sharon repeatedly in the stomach. Mm. Watson joined in once again. Sharon was ultimately stabbed 16 times before she died. Then Susan Atkins picked up the towel she'd earlier used to bind Frykowski, dipped it in Sharon Tate's blood, and wrote the word pig on the front door. Unbeknownst to the others, Linda, who'd grown terrified at all the horrible sounds coming from inside the house, and who had partially witnessed the brutal attacks on Folger and Frykowski when they came out on the lawn, had already climbed the fence and fled the property. Good for you. 
She ran back down the hill and got into the parked Ford Galaxy and had actually started the engine already when the other three suddenly were just there. Damn. <laughs> Tex yelled at Linda for starting the car and told her to move out of the driver's seat, which she did. Mm-hmm. Watson then yelled at Susan Atkins for losing her knife. At this point, Linda spotted the revolver laying on the, sorry, lying on the seat. I always mix those words up because I'm dumb. (laughs) Lying on the seat between them and noticed that the grip was broken. Tex, I assume, noticed that she was looking at it because he told her that it happened when he'd beaten the man in the head with it. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, they didn't know the victim's names at that point. Right. Patricia complained that her hand ached because she'd been stabbing with that broken-handled knife Mm -hmm. that Linda had to borrow, Mm -hmm. and it kept hitting bone. So every time it did that, the busted handle would, like, dig into her hand, Mm -hmm. and she actually ended up with bruises on her hand from it. Aww. Poor baby. Whatever. Fuck you. Don't murder people. Fuck your hand. Too bad you didn't cut it off. Sorry. Okay. You know what? I'm not sorry. Fuck that. <laughs> that's why I laughed, because you said that you are sorry. I was like, you're fucking not. <laughs> Tex, Susan, and Patricia changed their clothing while the car was in motion, and no, I don't understand how that worked. I've never tried to change my clothes in a car that I was partially driving. Like, the two in the back seat, I understand how yeah. they changed. Not clear on how Tex really did it. I've never tried to do that in my life. I think the partial explanation (coughs) that they give in Helter Skelter is that, like, I guess Linda was steering for him. That's safe. How do you take your pants off when you're six foot three in the driver's seat of a fucking Ford Galaxy? Not easily. I don't think you do it at all. (laughs) (laughs) I've never been six three. But <laughs> but I don't think it works. Anyway, doesn't matter. That's supposedly what happened. Alright. Um, Linda, of course, having not gone in the house, didn't have fucking blood all over, so she didn't need to change. As they drove, Tex turned off Benedict Canyon onto Portola Drive, a street less than two miles from the Tate House. There they located a hose that the three of them were using to wash blood off their bodies, pretty much. Mm. But then they were confronted by the owner of the house that the hose belonged to. Rudolph Weber came out and yelled at them. He thought it was around 1 a.m. And he did attempt to detain them. Like, at one point he tried to take the keys out of the car because he knew they were fucking up to something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they managed to drive off, so he wasn't able to do that. He did, however get a very accurate description of the vehicle they'd been driving, and even got the license plate number, which he fucking miraculously remembered months later when investigators finally found him. Holy shit. In case you're curious, the license plate number was GYY435. I was not, but that's good to know. Too bad. I put it in the notes. I will own the next trivia night. You will not. I don't go to You will not remember this. I already forgot it. GYY something, I don't know. 435. There we go. Okay, from Portola Drive, Tex drove through a hilly area, eventually stopping along the side of the road, where he instructed Linda to throw out the bloody clothing. Which she did. As they continued to drive, Tex had Linda wipe the fingerprints off the knives and throw them out the window. Of course, she did that too. 
The first knife landed in a bush by the side of the road, but the second one apparently bounced off the curb and literally ended up laying in the road. Somehow, neither of these knives were ever found. At least not by investigators. So somebody was like, hey, free knife. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! This murdered people, but it's mine now and I didn't pay for it. <laughs> not long after that, the gun was thrown out the window too. Now that was either by Linda or Tex, but by the time the trial happened, Linda wasn't sure. She said she thought she'd done it, but maybe Tex had. Mm-hmm. Either way, someone threw the gun out the window. Eventually, Tex stopped at a gas station where Susan and Patricia used the restroom sink to wash the remaining blood from themselves since they'd gotten interrupted when they were trying to use that hose. And then they finally drove back to Spawn Ranch, most likely arriving around 2 a.m. Charles Manson was waiting for them. After Susan spotted some blood on the outside of the car when they were back at the ranch, Manson ordered the girls to wash the galaxy inside and out, because of course he fucking did, because he never fucking does anything. He's always ordering people to do it, and those people are usually women. Because, get this, I know it's really out there, he's a fucking misogynist. What? He's a Hitler-loving misogynist. You're kidding. With a Napoleon complex, because you're fucking short. I am so surprised by this information. Don't make me almost spit Red Bull. That's like a waste of money. I apologize. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) Alright, so now we're going to skip forward a few hours. Around 8 a.m., Winifred Chapman, the housekeeper of 10,050 Cielo Drive, got off the bus at the corner of Santa Monica and Canyon Drive. As she was searching for a taxi, and frustrated because she is running late because of the stupid fucking bus not being on time, (laughs) she encountered a former co-worker who gave her a ride almost to the gate of the Tate Polanski house. That's nice. Not about to be a very good day, though. Of course, I'm telling you this because Mrs. Chapman was the one to discover the horrors that waited beyond the gate. Because the phone line had been cut, she ran terrified first to 10,070 Cielo screaming for help, and when there was no answer there, she went on to 10,090, where she found neighbors willing to help. The call to emergency services was placed at 8.33 a.m. Normally, we'd spend a good amount of time going over the initial police search of the crime scene, especially at such a well-known case. But frankly, in my opinion, the LAPD, who had jurisdiction in this case, did a fucking terrible job of handling it. So they botched it, is what you're saying. A whole bunch. (laughs) A whole bunch. And it started right at the beginning, and they just kept on sucking. Wow. So, I'm not going to spend as much time on that as I typically would, especially since this is one of the cases where there's actually no fucking doubt about who committed these crimes. Yeah. At all. So, I'm going to go ahead and provide a few examples of what I'm talking about so you can get a sense of the type of fuckery that happened at the crime scene. Okay. And so that you will know that I'm not being unfair, they sucked at their jobs. To a little bit of background before we get to the first thing. <laughs> Officers Jerry DeRosa and William Wissenhunt 
discovered a young man named William Gerritsen, age 19, staying in the guest house on the property while they were walking around, you know, the crime scene. Gerritsen was serving as caretaker while the owner of the property, Rudy Alto, well, sorry, Rudy Altobelli, I suck at life today, hmm. um, who, by the way, is was the Polanski's landlord. So even though I keep calling it the Tate House, he's the one that actually owned it. They were renting it from him. Okay. And he was out of town, so that's why he'd hired someone to stay in the in the guest house. I was going to say gatehouse. That's a different, a different thing. <laughs> While he was away. Of course, the officers were like, hey, you're here, so we're going to arrest you. And it's like, while I don't, while I'm not saying I don't understand why they'd be like, well, we're gonna fucking arrest you. I'd be like, I didn't do it. What I don't understand is the following horseshit maneuver that happened as Officer DeRosa was escorting Gerritsen off the property. Oh, this ought to be good. Oh. <laughs> is it good? It's real bad. Um, Am I gonna throw shit? Yep. Okay. Don't throw my drinks, I though. won't. I promise. So when they got to the gate control mechanism, mm-hmm. DeRosa noticed there was blood on the button. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, one would assume a police officer would see and recognize as probably valuable evidence in the multiple murder he was currently investigating and be like, I'm not going to disturb that. I mean, was DNA a thing yet? No, but if you touch a thing with blood on your fingers, fingerprints are a thing. Ah, okay, there it is. Yeah, um... I thought it was just, like, maybe a swipe of blood. Good. Well, we're never gonna know how good that print was, because Uh, he fucking pushed the button anyway, creating a superimposure that made any underlying print left by the killer unusable. Okay, I have a question. Yes. How fucking dumb do you gotta be? Listen. I am not a trained professional, and I know not to touch that. When he was asked about it later, do you want to know what he said? (sighs) Sure. I had to get out of there. Now you know. Fucking pushed it. Is that dude still alive today? I don't know. I didn't check. He seems dumb, so I'm gonna say no. accidentally electrocuted himself somehow. (laughs) Listen, it wouldn't be that far off. Oh god. I laughed so hard I couldn't breathe for a second. Alright, so that's not it. We need to do some more. So, as more and more police arrived on the scene, crucial pieces of evidence began to move around. Oh good. So, like, yes, police do need to move items during the course of investigating a scene. But as we've discussed multiple times on this podcast, that's only supposed to be done after extensive photographing of the crime scene is completed to record the original position of the evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that didn't fucking happen. Um, One item, a pair of horn-rimmed glasses, initially observed by the first three officers on the scene as lying near as lying near two large steamer trunks ended up some six feet away on top of a desk we don't know how magic i'd say the force but star wars wasn't a thing yet actually star wars happened a long long time ago so fuck you (laughs) 
in a galaxy far, far away. All right, we're nerds. It's fine. I win. <laughs> <laughs> Pieces of broken gun grip first observed in the entryway of the house. Yeah, uh, they ended up in two different locations. Of course. So two larger pieces somehow found their way under a chair in the living room, while a third smaller piece ended up on the front porch. So we're just not watching while we're walking at home. We're just kicking shit, probably. That's great. That's great. <clears throat> Plus, They're really good at their jobs. Oh, I'm not done. Oh, Plus, good. multiple officers tracked blood from the inside of the house out onto the front porch and over the walkway, creating additional bloody footprints, making it more difficult to tell which prints had been left by the fucking killers. Okay. What year is it? 69. Okay, so it is 1969. So my question is, are we in Gotham City because their police force is fucking useless, especially in 1969? No, because that's not a real place. Are you sure? We're still in Los Angeles. These cops are useless. Useless. You said it, not me. Yes, I did, and I'll stand by it. <laughs> There's like, There's another thing. Oh, God. Oh, good. More uselessness. Joe Granado, oh the investigator responsible for handling the blood evidence at the scene. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> he lost it. Nope. Okay. Uh, he chose not to run subtypes on nearly half of the blood samples he collected at the scene. That's 21 out of 45. Why? By the way, there aren't that many tests you can run on blood in 1969, so basically That's doing fair. a type and a subtype was yeah. probably it. Right. And he was just like, I'm not even going to fucking do a subtype, so now I don't even know which person this blood came from. I, I feel like in forensic school, or whatever, they would have... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Taught him to do that. In the cop place where they In the cop place. <laughs> In the cop place. In the cop place. In where cop they, school or where whatever. Where they teach you coppery. <laughs> coppery. Coppery. In the cop place. You know. And at the end of the day, they say, here's your hat. You're <laughs> Listen, my head hurts. So bad. That's the best word. I thought of it. Oh I was God. like, I'm fucking saying oh that. The coppery. This isn't even one of those <laughs> things where I said it and then was like, I didn't mean to say that. I was like, oh, I didn't fucking say that. Oh my God. I'm crying. <laughs> so in addition to all of that shit that we just talked about, there were also a surprising number of leaks of crucial pieces of information that probably should have been kept confidential to the press during the first few days of the investigation. I mean, and probably. extensive leaks of sensitive information continued throughout the case, like, all the way through the goddamn trial. So, apparently, not only do we suck at coppery, <laughs> but we also suck at keeping information out of the newspaper. 
So anyway, we're not going to do any more looking uh, at that part of the investigation because, like, it's mostly garbage and not usable that we, and we can't rely on it really anyway. So we're going to go ahead and move forward to the LaBianca murders now. Okay. Which fucking happened the next day. <coughs> Lino, 44, and Rosemary, 38, LaBianca, were on their way back to Los Angeles from a trip to Lake Isabella. At approximately 1 a.m. on Sunday, August 10th, they dropped off Rosemary's daughter, Suzanne Struthers, at her apartment on Greenwood Place. The couple didn't immediately head to their own home at 3301 Waverly Drive, which was in the same neighborhood, Los Feliz, where Suzanne lived. Instead, the LaBiancas drove to the corner of Franklin and Hillhurst to stop at John Fokianos's newsstand, where Lino was a regular customer. When Fokianos saw the green Thunderbird, he recognized the car and grabbed a copy of the Sunday edition of the Herald Examiner and a racing form for Lino. He chatted with the couple for a few minutes, mostly about the Tate murders, the breaking news of the day, before the LaBiancas drove away. Fokianos later estimated the time of their interaction as somewhere between 1 and 2 a.m., but probably closer to 2, because the bars closed not long afterward. John Fokianos would be the last person to see the couple alive. About three hours earlier, approximately 11 p.m. Saturday night, another group of Manson family members assembled at Spawn Ranch. It was the four from the previous night with three additional players. Stephen Grogan, often called Clem, age 18, Leslie Van Houten, also 18, and Charles Manson himself joined the previous four. They squeezed into the 1959 Ford Galaxy and set out on a mission. They drove around various neighborhoods before finally arriving on Waverly Drive, a location Manson evidently chose because he'd been to the house next door to the LaBiancas on several occasions. Manson armed himself with a knife and a pistol and walked into 3301 Waverly with no idea who its occupants were. Some sources claim Tex Watson went in with him. That's definitely a possibility, but unfortunately I'm not able to say for sure which version is correct. So he might have gone in alone, or he might have gone in with Tex. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Either way, the point of entry appears to have been an unlocked side door to the residence. Upon entering the house, Manson found Lino asleep on the couch with a newspaper on his face. Rosemary was in the bedroom. Supposedly, Manson was able to tie up the couple without any assistance before returning to the car where his followers waited. He then directed Tex, Patricia, and Leslie to go inside and kill everybody. The three of them entered the house and stabbed the bound couple to death. Lino LaBianca received a total of 26 stab wounds. The word war was carved into his stomach and he'd been impaled with a carving fork. Hmm. A steak knife would later be discovered in his throat as well. Jesus Christ! Bit overkill, but all right. Rosemary LaBianca endured far more wounds, a number of which were inflicted post-mortem. Oh, gosh. 
The killers then wrote three messages on various surfaces in blood. Helter Skelter, although misspelled, was written on the fridge, and Rise and the phrase Death to Pigs were written on the walls. I believe all of these were written using Lino's blood, although it's possible the fridge writing was done with Rosemary's because the book did not specify. For some reason, I thought Helter Skelter was written in the Tate house. No. Just pig on the door. Okay. I don't know why I thought that. Well, it's fucking spelled wrong. Either way. So technically, technically they wrote Helter Skelter. Good job, guys. (laughs) Spelling is hard. Evidence later found at the scene indicated the killers had then used the couple's bathroom to wash up as well as the kitchen sink, because traces of Rosemary's blood were found in the rear bathroom, and traces of blood that they weren't able to test to tell for sure which person's blood it was were found in the kitchen sink. Also in the kitchen sink were fucking watermelon rinds, because apparently all that stabbing made them hungry. Okay. Around 8.30 p.m. Sunday night, so this would be... Probably like 16, 15 or 16 hours later, depending on the exact time of death. Frank Struthers, Rosemary's 15-year-old son, arrived home from Lake Isabella. Originally, the teenager was supposed to come home with his mother and stepfather the previous night. But they decided to let him stay on one more day since he was having such a good time with his friend and his friend's family. Thank God. Fuck, yeah. I hope he was okay. I hope he was taken care of. Well... Mentally, I don't know. Oh no, mentally he's fucked. But, yeah. Um, So after his friend's family dropped him off, it didn't take long for Frank to realize that something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. While still in the driveway, he noticed the speedboat... Sorry, the speedboat was still on the trailer, hitched to the Thunderbird. Um, That was highly unusual because his stepfather never liked to leave the boat out overnight. Okay. Frank put his camping equipment in the garage before heading to the back door, where he noticed something that made him feel very uneasy. Mm-hmm. The shades were drawn on the kitchen windows. He'd never seen them like that, ever. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, he could tell that the kitchen light was on, though, so he decided to knock on the door. No answer. So then he started trying to yell out for his parents still nothing Hmm. by this time frank had grown extremely worried rather than make any further attempts to enter the house he walked to the closest payphone which sometimes i forget those were a thing Mm -hmm. i'm gonna be honest with you but they were were i just it's right before you said that in my head i was thinking i would have called my friend to come back then i'm like it's 1969 cell phones were not a thing nope and if you need to make a call and you're not like, you don't feel like it's a good idea to go in the house, or you can't get in, which yeah. he didn't know, because he didn't try. He yeah. was like, I'm fucking out of Either here. Either you have to find a payphone, or you go to the neighbor. Yep, exactly. So, mm-hmm. he's a smart fucking kid for 15. Yeah. So, he goes to the closest payphone, which is at a hamburger stand on the corner of Hyperion and Rowena, and tries to call his parents' house to see if anyone answers. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. So then he's like, I'm going to try to call my sister. Mm -hmm. Thinking she was at work, he called the restaurant that she worked at. Right. But the restaurant owner was like, oh, I'm sorry, Suzanne's off tonight. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, 
the restaurant owner was a decent fucking human being. So understanding two things, one, that Frank probably only had so much money on him to be using a payphone, and two, (laughs) knowing the kid was legitimately scared, the restaurant owner was like, I will try to call Susan at her apartment. Frank gave, um, gave that restaurant owner the number for the payphone so they could call him back. Just after 9 p.m., the payphone rang, and it was Suzanne calling for Frank. She explained that she hadn't seen or heard from their parents since the previous night when they dropped her off, and she told her brother to stay where he was because she was coming. Okay. For some reason, I thought she was in the house, too, No, she was killed, too, so that's No, she good. lived... They dropped her off at the apartment, remember, <coughs> at 1 o'clock in yeah, the morning. Yeah, I do now. Yeah, I don't know why. It's just something in my head just, like... <laughs> Um, Suzanne, as soon as she got off the phone with her brother, then called her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan, and was like, hey, something bad is going on. I need your help, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So, together, Suzanne and Joe picked up Frank from the burger stand around 9.30, Mm -hmm. and they drove back to the house. Knowing that their mother often left a set of house keys in her car... The group managed to find those, so they got in the car and found them, and used them to gain entry through the back door. Now, I just want to make a quick note. No one had actually just tried opening the door, so we don't know if the door was actually locked at that point or not. Right. And we never will, because they put the keys in. Yeah. Once inside, Joe thought it best for Suzanne to remain in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. because he didn't know what they were going to fucking find. (laughs) So he was like, hey, I need you to stay here, and he and Frank were going to check the house. Mm -hmm. They did not make it any farther than the living room, because Mm -hmm. that's where they found the body of Lino LaBianca, lying on his back between a chair and the couch. Mm -hmm. They could tell that a throw pillow was over his face, and could see that some type of cord had been tied around his neck. His pajama shirt was torn open, and there was an object sticking up from his stomach. They did not get any closer than that. I don't blame them. Like, Lino was so still, they knew he was dead. And they were smart enough to be like, we needed the fuck out of here. Because one, we don't know who did this. They could still be in the house. Right. And two, how are these kids so much smarter than the cops? Because they're like, we can't touch stuff. Seriously? Yep. Jeez. So, not they do not want to contaminate anything. Turn around, go right back to the kitchen where they came from. Mm -hmm. Not wanting to upset Suzanne... Initially, Joe, like, lied to her and was like, everything's okay, but we need to leave. Mm -hmm. Um, She did not believe him because Mm -hmm. she had already noticed words written on the fridge in what she thought was red paint, but we know is blood. Yeah. Initially, Joe was going to call the police from the house. And at this crime scene, the phone lines were not cut, so he would have been able to do that. But pretty much as soon as he touched the phone... He was like, I shouldn't be touching this Mm -hmm. because it could be evidence. Right. So he hung (coughs) it right back up, didn't touch anything else, and they fucking left. Yeah. Smart. Okay. So they go across the street to a duplex, Mm -hmm. thinking they're going to get help from the neighbors. Yeah. So first, Dorgan tries 3308 Waverly and rings the doorbell. The neighbor would not open the door, Mm -hmm. but they did look through the peephole. So he tried explaining to them through the door that there was a stabbing across the street and he needed to call the police. Mm -hmm. Still unwilling to open the door at all, the occupant said he would call the police for Dorgan. Okay, quick thing. 
totally understand not wanting to let someone into your house, but sure. what happened? What happens next is a dick move. Okay. The person did call the cops at 10.26 p.m., but to complain about juveniles ca- causing a disturbance. Idiot. Not to fucking report the stabbing. Yeah. I'd be like, cool, send the cops to this address. <laughs> well, fortunately, Dorgan was like, you're fucking useless. Yeah. So he continues making good decisions and just goes over to the other part of the duplex. So he um, tries number 3306, and thankfully there, the occupants let them in. Mm-hmm. So Dr. and Mrs. Mary Brigham, because women don't fucking get first names in the fucking 60s, let the three people three young people in but they were so upset at that point that none of them could really make the phone call like i assume probably crying and like being hysterical and hard to understand right so mrs brigham again no first name called emergency services for them um, an LAPD unit was dispatched to the scene at 10:35 p.m. and arrived in about 5 to 7 minutes. Once the police officers arrived, they entered the house, and in addition to Lino's body in the living room, they discovered Rosemary LaBianca's body in the master bedroom. She was face down on the floor lying parallel to the bed in a pool of her own blood. Strangely, the Rosemary had on a short pink nightgown. She also had an expensive white and blue dress over it. Hmm. Which, like, why? Yeah, and on top of that, both garments were bunched up around her head, exposing her bare butt, back, and legs, which were riddled with stab wounds. Hmm. I know. She had a pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord wrapped around her neck. Um, that cord belonged to one of the bedroom lamps, and because of how taut the cord was when they found her and the position of the lamp, which was overturned, investigators believe Rosemary had actually tried to crawl before she died. Mm-hmm. That's sad. I know. Um, upon closer inspection, investigators discovered Lino had a pillowcase over his head as well. Joe and Frank hadn't been able to see that because the throw pillow was obstructing their view. Mm -hmm. Both victims were pronounced dead on arrival. Mm -hmm. Earlier that same day, again, we're still on Sunday, August the 10th, Mm -hmm. the autopsies were conducted on the five Tate victims, beginning at 9.50 a.m. and concluding at 3 p.m. Three doctors were involved in the autopsies. Dr. R.C. Henry performed the autopsies on Abigail Folger and Jay Sebring. Dr. Gaston Herrera performed the autopsies on Wojtek Frykowski and Steve Parent. And Dr. Thomas Noguchi supervised all four of those autopsies and then conducted the autopsy of Sharon Tate Polanski himself. For the sake of time, I'm going to limit myself to the basically the findings for cause of death and injuries on each victim. This is going to be kind of quick, but it's still, I feel like it's still very upsetting to hear like injuries in rapid succession like this. So if you feel like you're getting upset, I would encourage you to just hit skip a couple times and I should be done. Are you going to talk about Sharon Tate? Mm -hmm. Okay. She's first. Okay. So maybe skip ahead a little bit. 
Sharon Tate had multiple stab wounds to her back and chest, penetrating her liver, heart, and lungs, and causing massive internal hemorrhaging. She had a total of 16 stab wounds, five of which would have been fatal on their own. Jay Sebring's cause of death was exsanguination. He literally bled to death. I know what that word is. The victim was stabbed seven times and shot once. Jeez. The gunshot wound and at least three of the stab wounds would have been fatal in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't able to get much information on Abigail Folger other than to say that she was stabbed 28 times. It doesn't mention how many of those wounds would have been fatal. Right. Steve Parent, one defensive slash wound to the hand and wrist and the four gunshot wounds, which I already talked about. Right. The shots to the chest were fatal. Okay. And finally, and most disturbingly, Wojtek Frykowski. Two gunshot wounds, Mm -hmm. 13 strikes to the head with a blunt object, 51 stab wounds. That dude fought really fucking hard. He put up a fight that I can't even imagine, like, attempting to put up. I've got a lot of fucking respect for him. I'm sorry that that happened. Um, all the gunshot wounds were determined to be from 22 caliber bullets, so they were pretty sure there was only one gun at the crime scene, which we now know in retrospect is accurate. Also, by August 10th, the LASO detectives, Gunther and Whiteley, investigating the Hinman murder, had managed to connect Bobby Boussolet to the Manson family. So again, that's within like two and a half days of him being arrested. They're like, hey, Manson family. Mm -hmm. Having learned of the Tate murders, that's my summary and I thought it was pretty good. No, I'm not laughing at that. I'm laughing in my head because I'm like, how'd that framing of the Black Panthers go? (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and say it did not. Your paw prints were not convincing. Maybe you put the wrong number of toes on them. I don't know. Yes, you guys know they're not actually Panthers, right? I don't think they do. <laughs> um, having learned of the Tate murders, which of course were not in their jurisdiction because the LAPD is separate from the LASO in case anyone's confused on that, mm-hmm. these, two inspe- these two experienced detectives immediately noticed the similarities between the Tate murders and the Hinman case. I mean, come on. Pig was written on the door of the Tate house in the victim's blood, while political piggy was written in Hinman's blood on the walls of his house. Mm -hmm. All the victims were stabbed multiple times in the residence where they were currently staying. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know Frykowski and Volger weren't permanent residents of 10,050, but they'd been there for several months at that point. And it appeared to have been the work of one or more intruders. (coughs) Right. So Mm -hmm. these guys are smart enough to be like, this doesn't this seems like it's connected Mm -hmm. so gunther and whiteley rushed to the morgue while the tate autopsies were still in progress Mm -hmm. to report their suspicions about the connection between the hinman and tate murders lapd sergeant joe buckles spoke with the laso investigators but apparently found their theory underwhelming and dismissed the links insisting the tate murders were drug related oh my god fuck that guy you have any proof that they're drug related just that they found drugs in the house 
It was the... You know what? Okay. I knew you were going to say it was the 60s, <laughs> but it turns out they didn't give a shit that it was the 60s. They were like, there are drugs here. Everybody was doing drugs in the... Probably. I don't Most know. Most people there. were probably doing drugs in the <laughs> 60s. We were not alive. We don't know. But we think that's probably the way it was. I mean, the way you hear people talk. Pretty sure everyone was stoned all the time, but I don't know because I wasn't there. <laughs> So that stuff all happened the same day, August 10th. So now we're going to go to the next day, Monday, August 11th. And that's when the autopsies on the LaBiancas were conducted. Um, these were performed by Deputy Medical Examiner David Katsuyama. Upon removing the pillowcases from the heads of the victims, it was Katsuyama who discovered that Lino LaBianca had a knife stuck in his throat. Like no one else had seen that at that point. That's pretty gross. Yeah. I think I just said, did I say Lino or Leno? I think I think you that. said Lino. I'm, I'm pretty sure you said Lino. I'm sorry if I pronounced it wrong, y'all. I'm going to try to be a good non-headache having host next time we do this. I heard Lino. Okay. So. Um, Lino's <clears throat> cause of death, because again, we're going to stick to just the little summaries at the end there instead of going through the whole thing. Yeah. Lino's cause of death was multiple stab, stab wounds. He had 12 total, in addition to 14 puncture wounds from a serving fork, which is what was sticking in his stomach. That's rough, man. Any six of those could have been fatal on their own. Right. All but one of his wounds was to the front of his body. He had no defensive wounds, suggesting his hands had been bound prior to the start of the attack. Rosemary's cause of death was also multiple stab wounds. She had 41 total. Jesus. Again, multiple were post-mortem, so mm-hmm. she was already dead for some of that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Any one of six could have been fatal on its own. 36 of her wounds were to the back and buttocks, and she had a defensive slash on the left side of her jaw. For unknown reasons, Katsuyama assumed the knife recovered from Lino's throat was the murder weapon for both victims. Why? I just said un I just said unknown reasons. I know, but I had to say why anyway, because I'm confused. <laughs> he did not take precise measurements of the actual wounds to compare the dimensions with the knife. Yep, Uh, this would also cause problems later because the assumption that there was only one knife would lend you to assume there was only one attacker. Did he fail the coppery? He was not a cop. He was a medical examiner. Oh, so he failed the... The medical examinery. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're just making up schools now. It's fine. Listen, I don't fucking know. Medical examinery. I will say whatever I want. I like it. My brain is basically turning to soup. It's oh no. Fine. That's not good. There were also issues with determining time of death for these victims. Katsuyama's initial estimate was 3 p.m. Sunday, August 10th. When other evidence turned up in the investigation that contradicted that estimate, he then revised it to a range anywhere from 12.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. Wow. That's a big-ass window, sir. Yeah, that is a huge window. Because the victims were in their pajamas and the bed had not been slept in, like, they could tell that, the detectives ultimately concluded that the deaths most likely occurred within an hour or so of their interaction with John Vokianos at the newsstand. 
So that would put it sometime between 2 and 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. By Monday the 11th, LAPD investigators were already minimizing the apparent connections between the Tate and LaBianca murders. So it's like one thing to try to blame jurisdiction for like them not connecting Hinman and Tate, even though the Hinman detectives were like, hey, these are the fucking same. And the LAPD was like, get out of here, it's drugs. (laughs) We we didn't invite you. It's drugs, we just know it. Get out of here, it's drugs. Get out of here. That's my cop voice, it's (laughs) not good. Um, I like it. So that's, you can try to blame jurisdiction for that as much as you want. I mean, that's what Vincent Bugliosi did. Mm Mm-hmm pretty much was like, well, they were in the same jurisdiction. But these two fucking cases were both the LAPD. And they were still like, no, it's not the same people. Jesus Christ. Yep, so these cases were worked as completely separate by the LAPD. Um, Now, this may be because the LaBianca homicides were initially thought to have potential mafia connections. Mm. Um, One of the people they spoke to was Lino's former business partner, who informed police that not only did Lino have extreme gambling habits and was in a lot of debt, he thought maybe the mob was connected. Okay. Yeah, that eventually got ruled out, obviously. Um, And of course we know that the Tate murders were being investigated as drug-related, so maybe that's why, but like really I just think they were like, nah, they're not the fucking same. But guys... There were words written in victims' blood at both crime scenes, and there were multiple stab wounds. Like, what the fuck? This is not rocket science. I don't think it is. I don't think it is either. I mean, I don't know a lot of stuff, but I'm moderately intelligent sometimes. Once a week. All right, once a month. Okay, stop. All right, we we gotta finish now. It's gonna be annoyed. Okay. Um, So anyway, while all this shit's going on, it turns out the L.A. County Sheriff's Office was investigating the Manson family in connection to stolen vehicles as well. For several weeks, deputies had been closely watching the ranch because they suspected an auto theft ring was being run from the property. Newsflash, it kind of was. Just in case you didn't know that, listeners, ultimately, LASO's surveillance accumulated enough evidence to get them a search warrant that they were going to use to raid Spawn Ranch. This raid would ultimately be the largest conducted in LSAO's history up until that point. Hmm. At 6 a.m. on August 16, 1969, more than 100 officers descended on Spawn Ranch, armed with AR-15s, tear gas, and handguns. Wow. The search was assisted by two helicopters, 35 squad cars, and a fleet of ATVs to cover the ranch's 200 acres. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that seems like an overreaction, but it's, it's not. pretty fucking big. That's so, a huge okay. ass ranch. I, okay, yes. Um, LASO arrested the 27 adults and 7 juveniles they found on the property at that time, confiscated 7 stolen vehicles, and a large quantity of weapons. But then, it fucking happened again. And by it, I mean some kind of fuckery that needs to be explained. Some kind of fuckery. (laughs) No. Some kind of fuckery. Please cut that out, Nate. (laughs) If you cut that out, I will scream. (laughs) Leave it in. So in spite of all of that evidence that they'd already compiled, Mm -hmm. yeah, 
you know, by the surveillance team and they used it to get the thing and then everything from the raid. Mm-hmm. No one in the family was charged in connection with the stolen vehicles. Oh my god. <laughs> three three days later, LASO released all thirty-four of the people arrested at the ranch. You- I'm not fucking kidding you if that's what you're gonna ask. I understand why your brain hurts. It hurts a lot. Because my brain hurts. It's gonna hurt even more. You ready? No. Too bad. Okay. In Helter Skelter, Vincent Bugliosi blames a misstated search warrant for the failure of the raid to lead to charges. But during his multi-decade effort to research this case, Tom O'Neill made contact with none other than Charles Gunther, that guy from the LASO who was one of the detectives investigating the Hinman murder. Mm-hmm. Gunther used his LASO connections to get O'Neill some unauthorized, so, you know, not really allowed, but he got it anyway, mm-hmm. access to the closed case archives. Okay. During one of his earliest visits to those archives, O'Neill turned up a copy of the fucking search warrant. In its 16 pages, The warrant revealed a great deal about the depth of knowledge LASO had relating to the Manson family's auto theft activities. It also specifically indicated that Manson was a federal parolee, which meant they were fully aware that if he were violating parole in any way, even if it weren't like they could absolutely prove he committed a crime, if he just violated parole, which they had a fuck ton of proof for, he should have been sent back to prison. They didn't do that. As for that supposed mistake with the date that he, that Bulgosi alleged resulted in the whole family being released free of charge? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fucking lie. Mm. The warrant is dated August 13th, 1969. California Penal Code stipulates that a warrant is good for 10 days from the date of issue, so the August 16th raid was completely legal. When O'Neill raised further questions about this with the DA's office, as in, hey, clearly this raid was legal, why weren't these people charged with a crime? Mm -hmm. He was told that they were released due to insufficient evidence but truthfully no one has been able to really explain why in light of all of the information LASO had at that time of ongoing illegal activity happening at Spawn Ranch no one was charged with any crime at this point and if that doesn't make you angry it really fucking should because we're talking about them being in custody on August 16th. Ultimately, the Manson family was not formally connected by investigating officers to the Tate or LaBianca murders until months later in December 1969. Mm -hmm. And only then because of the loose lips of family member Susan Atkins, who was already incarcerated on charges relating to further raids on Spawn Ranch conducted in October 1969. During those months, there is evidence that the family claimed still more lives. So they were still out for four more months after this. Most of them were. Obviously, Atkins was in jail two months later. But they killed more people during all that time that we were insisting these crimes weren't connected. Good job. How did these repeated failures by law enforcement continue for so long? Who 
or what was pulling the strings that kept the Manson family safe while they spilled innocent blood? We'll delve more deeply into these questions next week. Join us. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to us. Please rate, review, and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes of the Studying Scarlet podcast. If you have any cases or any criminals that you would like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to email us at studyingscarletpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can hit us up on any of our social media accounts. Those can be found in the description to this episode. And remember, guys, we talk about crime and criminals. Sometimes it's fact. Sometimes it's fiction. But it's always fucked up. Bye! This has been the Studying Scarlet Podcast. Hosted and researched by Ashley Rosewood and Jessica Charisse. Produced and edited by Nathan Schell.